A reading from the first book of Samuel. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, for the iniquity that he knew because of his, son, his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, here I am. Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people.
A reading from the Gospel according to St. Mark. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went through Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people.
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary,
love to manifest to your church the way of perfection. Grant us, we pray, to be nourished by her excellent teaching and enkindle within us a keen and unquestionable longing for true holiness. Through Jesus Christ, the joy of loving hearts, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. evening and welcome. It's wonderful to see you all uh, in person rather than as a big floating television head as I was last week. And a welcome to our, our chamber, Trinity Chamber Choir. It is wonderful to see you and hear you um, once again. I'd like to remind you that uh, we are in the midst of our stewardship season at Trinity. So if you're able to make a donation or a pledge for next year, we invite you to do so. Our stewardship season continues to, through October 31st, so two and a half weeks away. It is a great pleasure to welcome John Dryman. The Reverend John Dryman is the rector of Trinity Finley here in the Diocese of Ohio. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. I have a confession to make, and it's an appropriate one considering the feast, as St. Teresa of Avila shows us that 
confession is both vital for one's soul and also potentially tedious to the person hearing it. <laughs> Teresa's confessor, St. John of the Cross, was purportedly driven to distraction during his sessions with the woman. So here is my possibly irksome confession. I often get a bit waspish in both senses of that word, when the subject of spirituality or mysticism comes up. I often make jokes about being religious but not spiritual, uh, rather than the converse, or that I have an institutional relationship with Jesus Christ, rather than a personal one. These are, of course, vast overstatements and meant to be amusing, whether or not they are. This is not, I promise, just a product of my high and dry churchmanship or my young, fogey personality. It's really a reaction to the excesses of a certain kind of approach, now rather ubiquitous among that spiritual but not religious set, which, even when undertaken in a putatively Christian context, often strikes one as being more concerned with self-actualization or something like that rather than union with God. It is a pastime engaged in largely by comfortable, upper-middle-class, white suburbanites desiring to find themselves in the midst of a life lived largely shielded from the constant struggle and deprivation, which, and not to romanticize this, but simply to tell the truth, I believe, uh, shielded from the constant struggle and deprivation which allow the poor and marginalized to find their experiences more obviously redeemed in the light of the cross of Christ and in the communal, indeed institutionally mediated, life of Christ's body, the church. The wonderful thing about St. Teresa of Avila, and indeed of all the mystics of the late medieval and early modern church, is that she and they provide such a beautiful, spiritually serious corrective to this approach. It is ironic that perhaps the worst of the proponents of the comfortably self-involved, contemporary, spiritual, but not religious worldview, Elizabeth Gilbert, praises Teresa in her popular memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, presumably having never read her writings, or at least having grossly misunderstood them. Take St. Teresa's The Interior Castle, perhaps the greatest work of Christian spirituality of the 16th century, 
and one of the most important in all of modern church history. The book describes the journey through the seven mansions or dwelling places which she believes constitutes the human soul until one reaches the center where one finds perfect union with God himself. Passage from each dwelling place to the next requires intensified practice of prayer and meditation. But this is not exactly a primer on prayer. It already assumes one is praying regularly and staying unstained by the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is assumed and repeated throughout the text that one is availing oneself of the sacraments of the church, particularly the sacrament of penance. She is writing to her sisters in the Carmelite order which she herself reformed, having cut out the worldly nonsense, increased the rigors of corporal mortification, and literally took the shoes off the nuns and monks, discalciated them. And that's your vocabulary word for the day, discalciated to make real the poverty and simplicity that the order had lost in the prior centuries. So it's in the context of sacramental worship and common discipline that the Christian is then enabled to retreat into his or her closet and delve into the depths of his or her own soul with confidence and intentionality to find the Lord of life internally, just as his convicting and redeeming grace has already been experienced and received externally within the community. The life of the Christian soul, you see, is defined by this back and forth. This reaching out to the larger body and indeed the larger world, and the retreat into the darkness of oneself, and the repetition of this process over and over and over for one's whole life. It follows the same pattern as young Samuel in our Old Testament lesson, who moves back and forth between the dark room where the Lord spoke directly to him and the room of the priest Eli, who stands for the worship of the whole people of God. It follows the same pattern as our Lord Jesus followed again and again as our New Testament lesson shows, going to a deserted place to pray alone to his Father 
and then rejoining the band of the apostles and the people to whom they preached and ministered. It is the pattern of Christian monastics since nearly the very beginning, when St. Antony was not permitted to stay in the desert alone by himself as a hermit, but the Holy Spirit sent him others, knowing it is not good that any of us should be entirely alone. It remains the practice where even the most solitary and silent of monks and nuns are called out of their cells by the chapel bell to, to pray together every day, seven times a day, and to receive the sacrament of our Lord's body and blood together. And this is not only the realm of spiritual athletes, the Antonies and Benedicts and John of the Crosses and Teresa of Avila's of the world, but it is the call of ordinary Christians like you and me. I find myself, to be quite honest, usually loitering near the gate of Teresa's seven-tiered castle. And in the best of times, when I let God take more control of my unruly will than I ordinarily do, perhaps I manage to venture into the first or second room. I take this as a reminder that I must rely even more on God's grace, and it reveals for me the importance of what the Lutherans call the second use of the law, uh, namely as a mirror into my soul, which reminds me of how bad I am at keeping the law in the first place. Even for me, though, spiritual neophyte that I am, the pattern holds. We come together to avail of God's grace, avail ourselves of God's grace, mediated through the church, particularly in the sacraments. And then we go our way, taking time, even in the midst of all the distractions that St. Teresa managed to strip away in her monastic reforms, commerce, social obligations, shoes, to return to whatever cell or closet we can and must find, whether literal or metaphorical, to be present to God and nobody else. As I said before, I'm not terribly good at getting far on this path to perfect unity with God forged through prayer. The last four of Teresa's seven dwelling places, where one transitions from what we might call ordinary prayer and meditation to proper contemplative practice, is mostly uncharted territory to me. But I have one very minor, practical, personal insight. 
it will be a very dull and obvious insight to many of you and to anybody who is proceeding down the way of sanctification further than I've managed to do. But perhaps for a few of you it will be helpful. It's something I tell my parishioners in Findlay all the time, and really anybody who has the misfortune to have even a single conversation with me about prayer. And so now let me subject you to this, my rather banal advice. I owe my priesthood, and probably the fact I never strayed from Christianity during my college years like so many did, and even more probably the fact that I am a mostly functioning adult who is reasonably sensible and not exceedingly wicked to one thing. That one thing is that when I was a teenager, I got this crazy idea into my head that I should say morning and evening prayer from the prayer book every day. Not the one-pager daily devotions for individuals and families, as nice as those can be if for some reason one literally only has five minutes to pray every day, though I think the person in that situation might have some time management problems. That's beside the point. I don't mean some hip, inventive app on my phone with postmodern poetry and timed singing bowl chimes to accompany one's not-so-silent meditations. I don't mean flitting from one practice to another as uh, something stops feeling useful. I mean just sitting down, this is so boring, just sitting down with a prayer book and a Bible and doing it the old-fashioned way, twice a day, every day. I've been doing that for a little over 20 years, in even the worst times, the dark nights of the soul, as Teresa's friend John would call it, and even when I wasn't feeling it, and even when sanctification or theosis or union with God or whatever we want to call it seemed impossible because just going through the exercise may not have immediately struck me as beneficial, though it really was. Still doing it anyway. For me, I'd not be half as good a priest, might not even be a priest, not be half as good a husband, might not even be a husband anymore, a Christian, or a human being, if I hadn't been perhaps inordinately committed to doing this. And I'm not stellar at any of those roles, priest, husband, Christian, human being. It's, uh, you know, I, I might be winning on points, but barely. So take that's what it worth. But it's worked. Pray the office, here endeth the lesson.
In all events, Teresa of Avila teaches us the same thing Scripture teaches us, the same thing Christ himself models in his earthly life. And it's not really about becoming better people either, though that is, one might say, a fringe benefit. It's fundamentally about allowing God to work in us through our prayer and meditation infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. It is about the soul's ascent to union with God, which I believe is our purpose on this earthly pilgrimage. It is about conforming our whole selves, body, soul, and spirit, to the word by whom all things, including us, were made, that we might enjoy that perfect union for eternity. For all that the rigors which the spiritual athleticism of great heroes of the faith like St. Teresa might at first overwhelm us, it's all ultimately as simple as those sentiments expressed by one of my favorite prayers from our prayer book about where prayer itself leads us. And with that prayer, I conclude. O God of peace, who hast taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be our strength. By the might of thy spirit, lift us, we pray thee, to thy presence, where we may be still and know that thou art God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.
Let 